there's nothing more offensive to the rule of law than when those responsible for writing the law, enforcing the law, prosecuting offenders of the law, or presiding over the court of law use their official position to violate the law. You're listening to Good is in the Details. I'm Gwendolyn Dolsky. And I'm Rudy Sallow. And this is the podcast where we learn what we didn't know we didn't know in the spirit of Socrates. Okay, one of my favorite things about whenever we do this show, I always feel so lucky with our guests. But you know what's even better? is when someone wants to come back, not just a second time, not just a third time, but a fourth time. In this episode, we have the Jeff Cortese. Yes. That's what you call him, the Jeff Cortese, right? I I don't know. Uh, I think he would, <laughs> I, I would think, I th- think he may be offended by a sight word being in front of his name. He's a very, low, <laughs> he's a very humble man. Humble and humility is probably one of, you know, something he's known for. The first time he was on the uh, the pod, we were still in studio. It was pre-COVID. It was pre-Zadie. And it's still one of my favorite ones. I still share it with my students. I absolutely love it. Yeah, he's so knowledgeable about law enforcement analysis. He's extremely passionate and he's a great writer. He's very clear, insightful. I love it. Much like I was saying about being humble, he's a no frills kind of a guy. He's a no BS kind of a guy. He's our first quad guest. Interestingly enough, he was quickly followed up by our second quad guest. So hopefully we'll get more triple and quad guests, but I feel that Jeff will continue to come back onto the show. He sent us a couple of text messages. It appears he may be doing his own podcast and possibly a YouTube channel, probably because of all the success he's had with all the fun he's had with us. So we'd like to, you know, don't want to put the cart before the horse, but want to, for our listeners that are big fans of his, definitely go onto his website, definitely search his name, definitely follow him on social media because it looks like he's got a lot more going on out there. In addition to the book that we discussed that was just recently published, Public Corruption in the United States, Analysis of a Destructive Phenomenon, which is what the primary point of our episode was analysis of this book. Why did he write it? Why should our readers care? Why is this such a destructive phenomenon? And I learned a lot on this episode. I thought I thought I knew it all because I think I'm a know-it-all, but I really know nothing. And I got a lot out of this episode. And I hope you did too. And I hope our listeners did too. I learned that sex is not corruption. That's all. Um, federally. <laughs> on the okay. federal level. And which is an important point because in the United States, and by the way, I want to mm-hmm. thank our international listeners. We are big overseas, Gwen. We are really big overseas. I'm getting into the data of where our show is going. In the United States, remember, we're a federal system. We have federal law, i.e. the United States federal law, and we have state law. So depending upon the state that you live in or the state that you committed your crime in, sex may or may not be a part of corruption. So I want to make that distinction. When you say one thing is illegal, you got to make the distinction between federal and state. Jeff was a part of the FBI, which is a federal law enforcement agency. They enforce federal law. And so want to make that distinction because we, and I'm trying to be respectful of our growing international audience. Oh yeah. And I know that we have some professors and people who are in academia and this book is also fantastic for anyone who's looking for something to put on their syllabi. It's extremely accessible. I think the way that he writes it and you definitely learn something new. All right. Oh, I can't forget. Okay. Just before we get started, we have a new patron on our Patreon. So we want to give a shout out to Phil. Thank you so much. And anyone else who wants to support the show or become a patron and get extra content, you can go to patreon.com slash good is in the details. I'll link that in the show notes. Okay. And let's talk corruption. 
Not as important as your awesome book. So we we should jump right on it. Okay, Jeff, welcome back. So this is your, is this fourth time on the pod? I think so. <laughs> ah, yeah, so. you hold the record. Best looking podsters in the podverse. Best hair. Best hair. Yep, all of that. Uh, not today. I'm a little, I'm a little too, little too hairy today on, on the face. But uh, yes, when, when done up, we certainly are. Yes, indeed. <laughs> okay, so we're going to be talking about your book, Public Corruption in the United States, Analysis of a Destructive Phenomenon. Oh, my copy signed, Jeff. I just noticed that. Ah, <laughs> yeah. Rudy, is yours signed? It's a competition. <laughs> yours, wait. Oh, yes. Okay. All right. Yours is signed. Well, Jeff, now, now I'm. <laughs> I, that does may yours... have decrease the value of the book. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm excited. And I noticed that toward the end of this, you stepped into my wheelhouse when you're talking about ethics. And it's funny because before I got to this section on ethics, I had made a note in the margin of Aristotle and virtue ethics. And then sure enough, it popped up. But oh, let's let's start out I'm with tell you, it crossed my mind that I should try to figure out how to cut that chapter out before I send it to you. Like, I mean, ah! you know, this, is, <laughs> this is the novice uh, approach to it. You're, you're the pro. So I was a little hesitant to send that that chapter to you. But no, I love it. I think. Well, first of all, let's, let's, (laughs) I want to talk about it because like I said, that's my wheelhouse, but I want to make sure that we cover what your project is. What are the different ways in which corruption shows itself? I really like at the beginning, how you just give us the basics and what is the definition of corruption? Let's see. Application is the identification of behavior resulting in criminal liability, abuse of one's office or position for personal gain. Can I ask something real fast? Uh, Something that occurred to me, and I'm sorry, I don't know if this is even a good question, but you know, I'm going to say it is though. (laughs) (laughs) And that's why we have you back. (laughs) Is it possible? Does corruption imply intent? In other words, is it even possible to have an act of corruption without intent? Like somehow it is by accident. Is that I have to interject really quick here. That is a great question. I I know you love hearing that, but damn, that's a good one. (laughs) I mean, seriously, that's probably one of the best ones you've ever asked. I mean, you ask amazing questions, but that one was, Jeff, what's the answer? Yeah, it's, that's a really good question. Thank you. So this gets a little bit into the weeds, but in a good way. So we could have a public corruption investigation involving a public official, and there are a broad range of statutes that could eventually be applied. And each of those criminal statutes is going to have different criteria, you know, different elements of the crime is what we call them, that need to be met in order to prove that that violation occurred. Some criminal statutes require proving intent, some less so, It would depend on the situation and how we're really explaining or defining it. So let me give you an example. Well, actually, let me ask you to give, can you give me an example of what you mean by, I guess, accidentally violating or committing corruption? Is another way to help out with this discussion, Jeff, is to, because you did a great job, you're talking about the tenets of criminal law here. Right. For right. most crimes, there must be some level of intent. There are certain categories of crimes called strict liability. Those are usually 
infractions or something along those lines where nobody needs to prove any kind of intent. If you did the act, therefore, it's already built into that. Usually that has to do with um, parking tickets or, or something like really low level where intent doesn't matter. I think what she's asking is, is there any type of crime of corruption whereby somebody didn't like where mistake of law or mistake of circumstances could be an actual affirmative defense against that, I, I think is, is what you, but maybe I don't want to put words into your mouth, Gwen, but there is a straddling here between like the well, law there, and stuff. That's often a defense. So for example, uh, chapters on border corruption, I think we've talked about this in the past. You have border patrol agent either at a, a checkpoint or you have a CBP officer at the point of entry. And let's just say they you know, are in the business of ha- they have to wave cars through the checkpoint, right? Their defense in a criminal investigation is going to be, I'm really bad at my job. I was just waving people through. The FBI is going to have to be able to prove that there was a certain element of intent or that there was an exchange of goods or, or uh, you know, that he received money. There's going to be a lot of evidence that they're going to try to collect to show that he knew what he was doing and that this was an agreed upon plan. So the defense frequently is, I didn't know I'm really bad at my job. That's why disaster recovery corruption is so successful because there's so much chaos going on. It's easy to say, oh, we're working really fast. And so, uh, you know, we just made mistakes. You have to somehow turn a mistake into an intentional event or exchange. But to have a situation that we would call corruption, whereby somebody benefits financially, engages in some official act and never realized that they were benefiting financially, you know, it gets a little bit, you know, me, I, I don't me, know that we're going to get let me to do, it. Let me do a favor here. Um, yeah. Let me do something for you where, where we usually never do on this show. We, we can actually answer a question. I think your Whatever, answer is really. going to be no, right? You could say no. Sometimes you could say yes. Sometimes you could say right. no. I think the answer here is no. Gwen. Yeah, I can't think of anything where somebody yeah. is going to be involved there you go. in, we, in, a, we, in a case we, that we're going to- The prove. show's over. We actually answered a question for the first <laughs> time in the history of our part. It took you four times coming on this show to get the question answered. Well, as you can see, I'm very verbose. Yeah. <laughs> intoxicated with the exuberance of my own verbosity. Just, just, just kidding, Gwen, sorry. No, I mean, as I was reading it, I was just wondering if it was even possible to have corruption without intention. So I think that was one of the oh. things that was going through my mind or like gift giving and you don't even realize yeah, so that you're doing that. I think that what we're distinguishing potentially between is some federal violations and state violations. And this is why I'm a little bit slow in my answer. There are conceivably state violations that are intended to address corruption, whereby somebody can engage in an activity that violates and falls under corruption without them intentionally doing it. And it could be in, in relation to gift giving. And like you said, like you were pointing out, they never actually reciprocated. It was a gratuity of some kind that could violate state laws and might even violate some technically federal laws, but that would never be taken through the trial process or charged if we, you know, we want to see that the public official was engaging in behavior that lined their own pocket and was, you know, there was this quid pro quo, or if somebody's pockets were being lined in anticipation of a future quid pro quo, right? So sometimes they like to separate the two events in order to make it harder for law enforcement to identify. So I'm going to give you the official act as the public official. I'm going to give you what you need today. You're going to give me a job two years from now when I'm done. Boy, that's tough to tie together, but they will do it that way to create those separations. Now, we as the FBI are going to be responsible if we're charging that to be able to tie those two events together. 
through other evidence, emails, consensual conversations, so forth and so on, right? So they do try to separate these two events to make it appear as though, oh my gosh, this is all just coincidental. But a lot of times it's strategic and planned out. Okay. I think one of your chapters that I said that caught my eye was about prison corruption. I'm not entirely sure why it caught my eye. Maybe it's because of the popularity of the show Orange is the New Black, where you have these, you know, stories and this attempt to humanize the women who are in prison. There's also a lot of discussion about the United States has such a large incarceration rate, a lot of private prisons. I think because people are away from society, they're in prison, that the corruption that's happening there, the everyday person just doesn't pay attention to. What is some of the corruption that happens in prisons? Is it different between a private prison? Is that helping? Is that making it worse? And why should we care? I want to piggyback on Gwen just said, it's funny, Gwen, in preparation for this call, I also told Jeff that one of my favorite chapters was on prisons. I just watched a documentary on um, the tragedy that happened at Attica. Jeff, I know you're no longer in the FBI, but you were there at one point. I'm just curious if you would be okay sharing your thoughts about what, obviously the Federal Bureau of Prisons is a whole other division that runs the federal prison program, but what is the position on private prisons at the federal level? I'm curious about that. Which questions <laughs> Jeff, we, we got Jeff to <laughs> pause there. Yeah, that was wow. good. That was good. Yeah, I'm, God, I love that you went to the prisons too, Gwen. I kind of warned him that I was going to do that too. Oh, all right. Yeah, I think I sent I sent Jeff a text. I said, I'm like, I don't, why is it that it caught my attention? But I guess there's just so much, there's a uniqueness about the American prison system, but it doesn't make the news that much. But every once in a while, I get this shocking statistic and then we forget about it. And I think it's because everyone is put away. So we don't, we don't see I, it. Well, but... I think there are a couple of things. Okay, let's go. Your point. One, I think they're bad guys. So it's easy for people to not care. Mm-hmm. Right. But that also is what empowers the prison corruption in the first place is the officers, the guards, the janitors. Prison corruption in- entails or could entail or involve anybody who touches that prison. So it could be the gardener who's smuggling in something. Right. It, it could be the psychologist. Uh, it could be a-, a doctor. Anybody who goes there. Right. Could be involved in prison corruption or fall within that category. Their first thought, one of their first thoughts is it's my word against theirs. I'm the good guy. They're the bad guy. Who's going to believe the bad guy, right? So that that's an empowering thing for corrupt officials to know that they're already in an advantage. But that's also why I think in many cases, people don't care as much. It doesn't hit the headlines as, as frequently. I will say the FBI absolutely cares. It's evidenced by the fact that they have a prison corruption initiative. I mean, we, they spend a great deal of time trying to get in there. It's a very difficult violation or issue to resolve because you're requiring the help of the people who are most likely involved in the corruption, especially if it's systemic within a prison. How do you get into that prison if the corruption is so systemic, which would imply that it, you know, there's no law and order there? Right. I mean, it is just rampant, very difficult to do. Now we find ways to do it, some of which I'm not going to tell because they are effective and they're effective because people don't know about them. And some of them are a lot through our relationships and law enforcement relationships and whatnot. But I think to answer the why don't people care, I think that's a big part of it is they're the bad guys. we got enough problems where good guys are being lied to and cheated from and are cheated on. And so I care less about them. The why should we care is, you know, I personally think, you know, what I have is quote that I hold on to that I came up with and now I hold on to it is uh, that there's nothing more offensive to the rule of law than when those responsible for writing the law, enforcing the law, prosecuting offenders of the law, or presiding over the court of law use their official position to violate the law. 
And that I would include in there the prison officials. I mean, that is an offensive event in the, the rule of law. It undermines the rule of law when we do that. That's one reason why we should care. Second reason we should care, and you know, there are going to be people who are going to roll their eyes at this, but I, we do believe, or we're supposed to believe, that the prison system is certainly a part of the justice process, right? You violate a crime, you serve your time. But we do hope, and this goes to a thing I've said before about justice, love being the root of justice. We want them to actually change in a positive way. We want them to come out of there a better person, hopefully. Now, there are plenty of reasons why that's difficult. They're surrounded by a bunch of other bad guys, uh, funding. I mean, there could be any number of reasons, but ultimately that is our goal is for them to come out and become good citizens. Anytime the public officials responsible for keeping them safe and helping them in their recovery, so to speak, engage in corruption, that they are hindering the inmates' ability to recover. That in and of itself to me is offensive. Like, I'm, you know, I'm not ignorant enough to believe that those who go in come out and everything's great, right? I mean, there are plenty of people who come out and engage in criminal activity. Plenty of them go in and establish new re uh, relationships and they get bigger and badder when they come out. They don't get better. Uh, okay, I get it. But we should be doing everything we can to facilitate their recovery. And corruption does not do that. So that to me is, is offensive. I don't like that. But we should care because these are our taxpayer dollars. Anybody at who's in the system should be given the best opportunity to, they should be able to serve their time without the fear of the government infringing on their ability to improve themselves. One of the things that you had mentioned in the book is that it's safety for somebody who's in prison, but also their humanity. So I know that people want to sometimes say like, oh, they did something wrong and therefore they deserve whatever's coming to them. But it's really about, I, I had to think about this for myself, why care? And it's because you are what you do. So if there's going to be any distinction between the state and the criminal, the state has to act in a just manner. If they are unjust, then they are no, there is no distinction between them and the criminal. So it doesn't matter who is serving time and what, however heinous it is, all that matters is the way that we, meaning the taxpayers and the justice system behave. That has to remain intact that there's this humanity there. Yeah, I mean, you said it far more eloquently than I did. But yes, I agree. I absolutely agree. She does that to me all the time. I mean, pretty much well, anything you know, anything that comes out of my mouth, she says it way more eloquently. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm usually right. I just don't know. I, there's like a disconnect between, because my brain's not that bright. So whatever comes out is just- Whatever, Rudy. I get Georgetown. flashes. I, okay, you know, Georgetown. Yeah. <laughs> right. UCLA, Georgetown. Okay, I see Rudy's uh, Rudy's flipping through some pages. No, I'm going through the prison chapter again. And I don't know. I mean, I, I like that your question, Gwen, and, and your response, Jeff, is we have no idea why everyone is so fascinated by prisons. In any movie that's set in the prison, any, I think, it, is that like... It's got to be like the number one fear. Like we all fear going to prison, but it ties into Gwen's first question too. Like, well, what if somebody didn't know? Like, what if there was no intent? And oh my God, then they're going to wind up in prison. And oh my God, prison is such a terrible place. And, and it's just, th this is actually a very dark, dark episode. Is, uh, is what I'm, is what I'm, is what I'm it's a subculture that you have to like be because we have no unless you're in prison or in law enforcement you don't really have any access and I would say even law enforcement doesn't really have access and that's why Orange is the New Black became so big because it's this 
very American culture, but there's no access. And the, the only way to get it is you have to go there and nobody wants to yeah, go it's there. Closed, it's a closed off system, which, I which enables the corruption and makes investigating it that much harder. So uh, talking about presence could be a whole other podcast episode. We should move on because the book is great, but I just want to, I want to throw one little crazy thought for you. Okay. This is an actual conversation that I know occurs amongst um, people of certain, let's just say ethnicities or races. Like literally I've talked to other Arab Americans or, or people that are from South Asia or Persians or, or even Asians. We're like, well, geez, what, what, what prison gang are we going to be able to join? Like, we, we can't have our own gang. We're going to get our asses kicked. Like, will the white guys let us in? Will the African-Americans let us in? Will the Latinos let us in? We actually have these conversations because we're, we would just be annihilated in prison. I, I know that sounds like a crazy topic, but people talk about that type of stuff. I'm sorry. I know that was like off topic. No, it's no, in the book, the gang culture. It's in, it's in the book too. And how they operate. No, it is. How, okay. No, wait, I have to stick to this. I'm sorry. I mean, that's, okay. that's why My I was bringing question. up was the gang culture, but, but it, one last question on the prisons. <laughs> we, we have to, because <laughs> okay. the, the book, because the book is so awesome. It touches upon so many things, but dude, the prison chapter is awesome. Sorry. Um, go ahead, Gwen. How do gangs operate outside of the prison? Like, how is that relationship possible between somebody who's in prison and somebody who's outside of prison? What is the operation there? I think that's something I was fascinated by as well. How do you communicate? How does that happen? How do those inside the prison communicate with those outside the prison? Yeah, in, in a network and gang activity. How does somebody <laughs> yeah. on the outside still have control of what's going on on the inside What's well, I mean, a lot of, often the those the guy on the inside has control of what's going on on the outside. Really? How? Yeah. yeah. So I, I want to be careful as to, you know, as far as the communicating, there are different ways. I mean, you know, getting a cell phone in prison is not a difficult thing to do, but it, it is contraband in a prison, right? They're not supposed to have cell phones. Why aren't they supposed <laughs> to have cell phones? Because they can run their organization from inside the prison. And what do they do? They meet people. There's a, a case, I think it was in this chapter that I, I referenced. It was a case of mine involving the head of the South Family Bloods out of Omaha, Nebraska, and a cartel affiliate in Tucson meeting in prison. And their organizations started working with each other while these two heads were in prison. And all they do is they get and tell their people to get in touch with this guy. And that's an easy phone call. You can do that on a visit. Have uh, Pookie reach out to uh, to Javi down in Tucson. Here's his number and work it out. And, and it could be something as simple as that. It could be as something as complex within that same investigation. Now, this was a, a litigation. This was a huge deal. Shannon Williams, who was the head of the South Family Bloods out of Omaha, Nebraska, this investigation involved somebody he claimed to be his attorney who was working for us. He didn't know that. He was running his organization through an attorney. Now, he called him his attorney in order to turn off all the cameras and the recording equipment in their meetings. And through those meetings, he would tell his quote unquote attorney what he wanted the organization to do outside of prison. He would then be expected to go out there and initiate uh, deals and, and so forth and so on. But he was working for us. The reason it was a huge issue in trial was he was in fact an attorney and they were calling that attorney-client privilege that we were violated. It was resolved easily because we knew we were walking into it. And, uh, you know, it was made very clear when he walked in there, I'm not your attorney. I'm not doing any legal work for you, so forth and so on. That was all recorded and everything else, right? So it was a, an issue that was settled, but it was a huge deal in the legal world, as Rudy, I'm sure, could attest. 
that was one way. He was he had people coming in and they would pass notes or he would communicate directly to them. They use cell phones. It's fascinating. It's not it's not disempowering to be in prison. That's what's oh. fascinating to me. No, it, it's good for business a lot of times because this you, is, they they established a, a new supplier through my guy in Tucson and his group to supplying, you know, because it, sometimes it's hard, you know, supply lines get shut down. And so you need to have different sources of product. Mm-hmm. And they were able to establish a new supply line through his going to prison. Three things. Gwen, you need to watch Blood In, Blood Out. Um, it's a great movie that shows a little bit of the history of the establishment of the Mexican mafia. And it, it actually has a very unique history behind it. I believe that was the film. It was either that one or American Me, where Danny Trejo had to get involved and they had to negotiate between the films of production people and the prison gangs that wanted the film shut down. Prison gangs almost shut this film down. Uh, no joke. That's how powerful they are. So it's not just in crime. Like they have major influence. So you should study the history. Of that. It's very interesting. Good L.A. movie. Number two, speaking really quickly of something, Jeff, don't want to get on this topic, but you mentioned Epstein, Jeff Epstein and, and his you know, purported suicide in prison. I want to point something out. One of the best tweets that you ever made <laughs> which was liked, either liked or retweeted by the great Jerry Seinfeld had to deal with Jeffrey Epstein and his um, demise in prison. So that was, I just want to hats off to you, man, right there. And number three, I want to quickly say, one of the reasons why I, whenever I talk to anybody and legal topics come up, I always say, I am a lawyer, but I am not your lawyer. And so I want everybody that's listening to this podcast to know if I don't, if they don't know yet, I am a lawyer. I'm nobody's lawyer. I, when I'm on this podcast, this is just Rudy who happens to be a lawyer. Just want to make that very, very clear. Can you podcast from prison? I just, not that I'm planning on going, but like if I was innocently, you know, if I was one of those cases, no, Rudy, we'll, we'll, you still we'll podcast with me about recording equipment. <laughs> uh, there actually, I do think there is a, a couple of podcasts that come out of prison. There, I, um, I, I think, would imagine there is. No, there is. Yeah. Anchor FM, I think is like, which is the easiest app to do your own podcast from. I, one or two of them might be on prison. And now a quick break to tell you about our sponsor, Avonmore. Avonmore Inc. sells bridge tallies. Do you play bridge or do any of your family and friends play? You've got to check out avonmoreinc.com or you can search Avonmore Bridge to reach the website. They sell to all 50 states and internationally. Avonmore also has smart colors playing cards, which are great for kids as well. Are you interested in bridge tallies, scorecards, coasters, post-it notes? Go to avonmoreinc.com. I'll link them in the show notes. And now back to the show. So Jeff, moving away from prison. So, okay, that's obviously (laughs) a a fan favorite of the chapter. And, you know, I read a lot of your chapters as you were reading them and everything. I have my own personal favorites. But I'd like to know, what's your favorite chapter of your book? Dang, that is a great question. But, you know, nobody (laughs) says that to me. No, literally, literally (laughs) nobody has ever said that to me on the show. But this is the first time I actually meant it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, Man, I got to look at this. I got to look at the chapters here. So let's see. One of my favorites. Yeah, like when you were writing it, let me help you in your analysis. As you were writing it, it flowed easily. It was as if the words were coming onto the page without any effort because it was that much fun or Uh, it was really enjoyable. So anybody who's ever written a book, I'm sure can attest (laughs) to the fact that the only time you enjoy writing is when you're done. (laughs) No, I I, I, like, I know what you're saying though. I I get your, you know what I mean? Yes. 
I have, I think, you know, border corruption and the organized crime and corruption maybe were of two pretty interesting ones. You know, I really love the law enforcement corruption one. Let's talk about law enforcement corruption. Let's focus on that for a second. Now, in your opinion, I mean, I know you, you've kind of already touched upon in, in the conversation that you were having with Gwen about how, hey, prisons are this place where people are supposed to get some kind of rehabilitation, rehabilitation, they're supposed to repair themselves. And the corruption involved with that is a terrible, you know, tax dollars, we should really care about that. But isn't law enforcement corruption, the worst kind of corruption that's out there, because these are the folks that we entrust our lives to. I'm not saying that's my opinion. I'm asking that question of an audience member. Would you say of all the corruption that's out there, law enforcement corruption is the worst corruption that's out there? I don't even know how to answer that, to be honest with you. If I had to narrow it down to a specific area, I would maybe as a collective talk about anything that's impacted by law and order. I think regulatory corruption and legislative corruption and stuff like that could be, I could put that in behind. I'm including judicial, judges. I mean, I'm, I'm including what, judicial corruption. I mean, I'm including judicial. It gets. I'm saying under the law enforcement umbrella, I'm yeah, throwing so really, in judges. I got in there. you. Yes. I think that's some of the worst because that has the most direct impact and direct contact. Well, maybe not the most direct impact because, but direct uh, contact with us, the citizens. I had a conference. I was in a conference with some foreign delegates last week, and I was explaining how in the United States, the foundation of our anti-corruption posture is law and order. The whole thing is built on that. Any proactive steps you take as an industry and as a company, anything the media and investigative journalists do, anything the government does outside of law and order, all those things fall apart if you don't have a strong law and order, right? In that regard, I would say it's extremely important to be as strong as we can be in those areas, which is going to include law enforcement, prosecutors, judges, all of that. One of the other questions I did get in that same conference, and I think it's somewhat related to this, is I was asked about law enforcement, specifically police officers, when I say law enforcement corruption, police officers and investigating them. You know, how often do we did we do that with the, the Bureau and in, in the United States? And I said it depends on the region because uh, there are different places where other forms of corruption take a higher priority. So, for example, in New Orleans, we did cops when we had a free minute, like when we're between big, massive cases, because you've got all these legislators, you've, you've got judges, you've got other massively impactful investigations. And in between those, we would do a cop here and do a cop there because we've got bigger kind of significant broader brush problems that might exist. You go to Tucson in the southwest border. Well, you know, the cops are facilitating the cartels. And that comes with a lot of death and trafficking of human beings and drugs and everything else. So we might focus more attention on the, the law enforcement because of the impact it has in that region, if that makes sense. It does. It makes a lot of sense. And in fact, just throwing this out there, I, I don't mean to get off topic, but one of my favorite films that has kind of what you were just talking about, Tucson corrupt cop Sicario, right? You know, that, I mean, you kind of lived that a little bit, right? Like a little of that border corruption, drugs, cartel stuff. Just give me two seconds as to your thoughts on that movie. You know, I, I really enjoyed the movie. So when I was transferred out to Tucson, shortly after I got there, the Southwest border was funded by Congress to establish uh, Southwest border violence squads in the FBI. So I was on a squad that was newly developed that was focusing on Sicarios and Bajadores. So hitmen and home invasion crews or rip crews. 
Tucson was an awesome place to work that stuff. It's very fast. You know, certainly they took a lot of creative liberties in that movie, as they should. But, you know, I thought it was a great movie. And right, it's, tell a, me. it's a lot of fun to work that stuff. It's a little bit hard to know what some of the stuff that's going on that you wish you didn't know. But somebody's got to work it. And it's a fun violation. It, Gwen, is that you've seen that film? No, but I'm going to oh talk about it. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. <laughs> how, how is it that you are that you have a, have a pop culture podcast? And you haven't seen any of the films that I ever mentioned on here. Please write that film down right below Blood In, Blood Out. You absolutely have to watch Sicario. If you're interested in this book, you have to watch Sicario. It's the real life Hollywood version of what the Jeff is talking Hollywood about. Version. It's Sicario. Jeff's life. Uh, in It's Jeff's border corruption chapter on film. And they're coming out with part three. Part two is excellent. And the, and the organized crime stuff as well. I think that's an interesting crossover with the border corruption. Okay, Did you write we, it down? Can we talk about sex? No, and absolutely no. I will shut this off. Did you I write down? So, did you write did down? You know, I did not know that sex does not count as part of corruption. And so I made a note um, about how investigative, you know, journalism can really bring light to corruption. And sure. a couple of things came to my mind. One is, so I'm going to mention a couple of books. Devil in the Grove was about in Florida, four black boy children were charged with uh, I think rape and torture of a white girl and it never happened. And as a result of this book, I think while DeSantis, uh, I think he was in office that he like officially, uh, whatever it is that you do, retracted that conviction or whatnot, even though it had happened way back when. But that would be an example, Devil in the Grove, of, of a type of journalism and story that brought to light a, something that people hadn't paid attention to. Another one is Ronan Farrow's book, Catch and Kill, which was about Harvey Weinstein. And that book was so, so good. I was completely sucked in because it was not only about Harvey Weinstein, it was about Ronan Farrow as a journalist and all of the threats that he had with trying to uncover what was going on. So it was like part autobiographical and part journalistic. And then as I'm reading your book, I see that sex does not count as a type a of, thing gift of corruption. Well, I would value. disagree. It depends, I guess, on who you're. Never mind. All right. No. So <laughs> wrong joke. All right. But I'm just saying something like that's only Harvey Weinstein. Level, it's only at the federal level. So there could be state violations where sex is viewed as a thing of value. At the federal level, it doesn't constitute a thing of value. So you have to find other statutes, bribery and corruption. Corrupt. Extortion. So it's a different law. It's just a different crime, but it's not considered... I mean, because that is criminal to demand sex of somebody in exchange. Absolutely. There are violations that it, that it covers, but it doesn't, but it doesn't fall under bribery and extortion. So bribery and extortion is uh, that has that defines a thing of value as part of the exchange of goods, right? The, the official act and the, and the thing of value. Sex is not a thing of value that meets the standards and the elements for bribery. So you have to use other, there are civil rights violations involved that we could use. There are, there are other things that we could use and then there are state violations. It's just specific to the bribery statutes, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. Yeah, no, I thought that that was that. Because we have run into that a lot. With uh, we had some judges uh, in New Orleans, where you know, and others who were a judge, I should say. It gets really tricky to figure out how to how to prosecute. Now, that's fortunately not the FBI's responsibility. It's the prosecutors. But there are civil rights violations you can use, among other things. So someone offers to have sex with a judge in exchange for a favorable outcome. Right. Have a ticket thrown out. Have, you know, okay. absolutely. That is 
illegal to do, but it is not consider if the judge were to say, okay, that is not considered to be corrupt. It's illegal, but it's no, not it's not, it's under not corruption. It's not going to meet the bribery statute if that's huh. the only thing of value. That doesn't mean it's not corrupt. It can still be investigated by the corruption squad. It will be investigated by the corruption squad. But as the statute is written, there are limitations to what we can use. So we have to use different statutes. That's all. Corruption is not defined by the use of a specific statute. There was still an exchange. He used for personal gain, he received this and he gave this official act. That satisfies corruption as it's defined. Now, part of that process is finding the right statute to use. We could have a corruption case and charge money laundering. We could have a corruption case and charge the structuring, which is nothing more than him, uh, a public official pulling money out in increments to avoid bank reporting. That doesn't seem all corrupt, but the investigation itself could have been initiated based off of corruption. It could be that a corruption event took place, but it's out of statute. Maybe we're past five years, but it's structuring. We could still charge. It gets into some of the nuance of charging and violation selection and all that stuff. But that's so interesting. Well, okay, Rudy, I'm done talking about sex. So you can come back now. Wait. Yep, I'm back. No, I'm back. Yep, whenever um, I uh, run away from that topic. The money laundering thing. Okay, so I think I do have a couple questions about that. Isn't it possible for somebody to be caught up in that and then not realize that they're caught up in that? And what exactly yeah. does it mean to launder money? Yeah, so I mean, it's pot. There are any number of scenarios whereby somebody could move money at the request of somebody else without mm. their awareness that they're engaging in money laundering. Absolutely. Somebody knows they're engaging in money laundering. So you have what's called an SUA. It's a specified unlawful activity. There are a list of crimes that serve as source criminal activity, whereby if an organization or an individual receives funds as a result of some of these criminal offenses, moves money through multiple systems or, or is now trying to take that quote unquote dirty money and clean it by moving it through accounts. And there are any number of ways. Trade-based money laundering is another one, but it is taking the proceeds of criminal activity and trying to clean it. So that's going to be the money laundering. So you could see how an accountant for a company who's told, hey, move this money from here to here, they're technically involved in engaging in that money laundering without their awareness of it. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean they're going to be held liable. It's going to be based on what we could prove they know. So yeah, it's easy for somebody to get caught up in that who doesn't know, but somebody knows okay. if it's in fact money laundering, which is generally a little bit different than terrorist financing. So terrorist financing is usually using clean money to move it through certain channels in order to get it to somebody so they can use it for terrorist activities. So there's terrorist financing and money laundering, and they have the money can move similarly, can. The difference is, I guess, terrorist financing is going to be a little bit more linear. It starts at A and ends in B. Money laundering starts in A, goes through B, C, D, and E, and comes back to A. So okay. it's circular. They want that money to come back to themselves. Terrorist financing wants it to go to somebody specific generally, but they have to move it through different channels in order to get it there, to hide it. Ultimately, you're trying to hide the source of the funds for money laundering and, and with terrorist financing. Hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. No, I it's just... Complicated. <laughs> and this is at the simplest level. There are very sophisticated techniques that are utilized and methods in order to hide money, internet, sending it internationally through multiple banks. And the goal of hiding the money, is it generally to, uh, well, as opposed to a terrorist organization, that would, that seems obvious, but I mean, within non-terrorist activities, is that to avoid taxes? Is that to, what are people normally laundering be, money for? It could be, but it usually for? isn't. 
could be to avoid taxes, but at the end of the day, they'll gladly pay their taxes in order to legitimize the money. So why do people, why do people try to hide the source of it? You're trying to hide the fact that you have acquired the money through legal means. Oh, I see. Okay. I I just made a million dollars selling a, you know, a a truck full of, uh, you know, dope. And now I've got this money. I've got to put it. I have to somehow clean it so I can use it. But I can't just go in somewhere and use it. So there's a complex process that they go into because banks ask source of funds. They want to know where the money came from. Are you gonna? Are you a business? What kind of business are you in? Oh, great. We'd love to come by and take a look at your shop. That's why you can use restaurants. If you've ever seen uh, Breaking Bad, you know, cash businesses, right? They are a good way to funnel illegitimate funds. I see. So if somebody goes to the bank with $100,000, the bank will ask a question. Great. Like, like I just want to deposit a hundred grand. Okay. Right. It and just that, seems that, so stressful. It is. It, it, well, you know, it's, it's, we only, it can be stressful, but it's a very, there are a lot of sophisticated ways of doing this kind of thing. The thing is, and where they, people get burned is they start getting lazy because it is exhausting. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they cut corners, they make mistakes. But at the end of the day, what they want to do is be able to, to move money, clean the money, and not draw attention to the fact that the money is ill-gotten. I think one of the myths, you also have some myths about corruption, and I kind of want to highlight this one, that people will assume a couple things, that men are more likely than women, and that the other thing is that one political party is more likely than the other. And you're saying, actually, it's all equal. <laughs> so is it a stereotype about men, or you know, what is it, or same thing with politicians that... It's just when somebody has power, they're more susceptible. It doesn't matter what party they belong to. So starting with the, the men and women thing, and I've seen studies that conflict or contradict what I'm saying. And, and we could take, you know, there are academic assessments of this topic and, you know, people could have different opinions. I'm giving from the, the FBI's perspective, from an investigator perspective. I think personally what ultimately creates the appearance of a disparity between men and women and whether or not one is more corrupt than the other is the fact that there are just far more men in politics and in government positions than there are women. The pool is much bigger. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, I haven't seen enough to suggest that there is a predetermined characteristic within men and women that make them different when it comes to corruption. And it's the same thing with political affiliation. At the end of the day, politics being what it is, it's about power. First, you have to acquire it, and then you want to accumulate more of it. And, and that process for a career politician, they, they use different talking points, but the expectation is the same. That's why they're all there. The Republicans, Democrats, whatever party, they're there with the same purpose. And, you know, I think I mentioned in the book that power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. And I take issue with that, like, because I think power and authority is a good thing. That phrase itself suggests that power is bad. I don't think power is bad. I have power and authority as the parent of my kids. As a, a, a professor, you have a power and authority over your class. Bosses have power and authority, right? Power itself is a good thing. But for those who don't have the integrity to handle the power, it becomes dangerous. And I think the Republicans, the Democrats, politicians in general, there is a susceptibility to compromise values that is inherent with the job. And that's inherent with both jobs. They need money constantly. So what do they do? They need to fundraise. And in order to fundraise, you have to negotiate. And then when you're in office, you've got to compromise your position for that position because not that I necessarily care about the issue itself, but I have to show progress. I have to move the ball. In order to do that requires me to compromise, Which, but I previously really cared about this. And now I'm willing to give that up a little bit to achieve a different goal. And going through this process, 
I think that talking about ethics, I think their value system deteriorates and their ability to maintain integrity diminishes. And that is consistent on both sides. There isn't one side or the other. If I'm being completely honest, I don't know how many people are actually Republicans and Democrats that actually believe much of what they're saying per se. I think they're all actors in a play and they're going to say whatever they have to say to sell tickets to the show. I think I can do that being this character. So I'm going to be this character to sell tickets. And that's the same again on the right and left. I haven't seen anything that suggests one party is more corrupt than the other. In fact, as I put in the state in the book, they're both extremely well represented across the country uh, uh, on the defendant's table. Yeah. And you, and you kind of cover a, a bit of that on a subheading, the Hitler effect, right? Where we, uh, you talk about the philosophical and moral question, would you kill Adolf Hitler before he got to power, knowing tens of millions would eventually die by his hand if you don't? You talk about the fact that politicians on the right, politicians on the left, like to use these extreme examples to their benefit, to get their, to get their team, their side, you know, uh, riled up um, and outraged and use that outrage for their purposes. I thought you did a terrific job of explaining the problems with that philosophical moral question and how it's used and abused. Division is essential to politics. The two sides, if you really look, they do not align and they don't want to align because uh, they will only when both sides simultaneously could lose ground. And when do you see that? A terrorist attack, right? You uh, Post 9-11, oh boy, we've got to be aligned here. We're you know, gay, gay patriotic, uh, patriotism. Like if one side says we're going to do this to make you safe, the other side doesn't or doesn't satisfy this taste for revenge, for lack of a better word. Like they're going to do what they have to do to maintain their ground. Only when they both could lose it will they work together. Politics requires conflict. They have to be different. We want why can't they align? Why can't we work together? This well, Because the design of it, it absolutely requires that they don't. They need you to hate the other guy. They want you to hate the other guy because if they don't differentiate themselves, if they don't, if you don't hate the other guy, I can't differentiate myself from him. It's the essence of a democracy. We live in a democracy. We choose to live here. The only way you have a democracy is if you've got two people to choose from. They got to differentiate themselves somehow. Maybe in the past, it used to be little minor things. Now, these days, maybe 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 we're viewing through our lens, oh, these are two major issues. So it's like, yeah, in a democracy, there has to be teams. There has to be um, argument. That's the nature of it. It's all about how civil we are to each other, notwithstanding who you vote for. To the layperson, hypocrisy, to be accused, Rudy, if I said, man, you're being a hypocrite, wouldn't that be offensive to you? No, because I probably probably am a hypocrite. No, I'm just kidding. I mean, I, <laughs> no, if you if you were saying it, then I would probably deserve it. I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, you know what I'm saying, though, right? That is generally an offensive thing to people. It could inspire a, re- a response. Let me rephrase. It will inspire a physical response that is not impactful to politicians because hypocrisy is just part of the game. Like, hey, man, it's just a tactic. I get it. I said this yesterday. I'm saying this today. They're not going to address it. It's not relevant. You could give a million examples of grotesque hypocrisy. Billion. Billions. Uh, right, millions billions. Is, right? I mean, billions. like, it's super easy. This is not hard. Uh, and a lot of people waste their time on social media doing that. But it's like, they don't care. This is a part of the game. But it's because it's a game. It's because conflict is necessary. That adds to the susceptibility of corruption because you've already put the fight and deception above right. And so that makes these guys vulnerable to being willing to get money or, or uh, in exchange for official act because they need that money. Crazy thing is that it's not just, not just a part. It's big business. It's entertainment. 
the outrage. It's the, it, it, I mean, it yeah. is entertainment. More people watch the Facebook Live videos of, of their team members outraged about something or certain news channels, whatever that is, right? Left or anything. They get their viewership because it's entertainment. The fights, our side versus their side is the most entertaining thing to people that's out there. And it gets advertisers, it gets clicks. I noticed whenever I watch clips of Fox or MSNBC or CNN, I am absolutely fascinated. They're constantly referencing each other. Yes. They need each other. So if you watch a show on Fox, they will show a clip of MSNBC. And then if you watch MSNBC, they will show you a clip of something that happened on Fox. They all require each other. And it is a game for you to be outraged and to get advertisements. There was an article that was published. I don't remember if it was the Atlantic or not, but about how the United States is more divided and it's uniquely divided as opposed to other democracies in that in the last 20 to 30 years that people will say they would not date or marry somebody of the other political party. And that is new. That didn't happen before. So what is going on? And all I can think about is in the last 20 to 30 years is when you have social media and the echo chamber and language that is escalated to the point where people are talking about murder, the end of the world. You know, I kind of wish we could just go back to a discussion about where tax dollars should go. would be really nice. I would like to have a fight over how much money needs to be spent on X versus versus Z. Like that would be a lovely debate to have. And I would be behind any policy that showed that it worked. Didn't matter if it came from a Democrat or Republican, if you can prove that it works. But now we're just thrown into this game of being outraged, like Rudy said, and people are making a lot of money off of us being outraged. We're like a bunch of European footballers, football fans, soccer fans. <laughs> right? Hooligans. We're we a bunch of hooligans. We're hooligans. Fight hooligans. to the death for our team to win. That's right. And that's man. it. It's crazy. That not on this show. This show, no. you know, we we try to keep, you know, we try to keep the team stuff outside and we try to talk about the issues and ethics and how to if, live a better life. And it sounds I, like if we can get rid of some corruption, all of our lives would be better, right? <laughs> well, Nicely right. done, Rudy. Nicely done. <laughs> Well, I think it's an interesting point. It's kind of related to what we were talking about. I know Rudy and I have spoken about this before, but corruption in general, most people don't even know what it is, public corruption specifically. There are three general definitions that people utilize. One is uh, the most common, the first one being the most common, and that is corruption is, I don't know, whatever my political opponent does, that's corruption. They're my enemy, therefore they're corrupt, right? That's the most common understanding of corruption. The second is probably ethical behavior or things that are perceived to be unethical that generally are, can only be solved through legislation. You know, we, we make a big thing about it, whether it's, I don't know, it could be any number of things, but we'll call it legal corruption that can only be solved through legislation. And then we have what is in fact public corruption, at least from the FBI's perspective, and that's criminal behavior, criminal activity, the, the quid pro quo. Very few understand what that is. And that's why I wrote this book. I wanted to communicate and talk to the people who are most impacted by corruption and educate them on identifying what corruption in fact is. Because the more we throw the word out there, the more people who are crying wolf, the harder it is for the FBI to do their job. The FBI relies heavily on the media, uh, journalists and information that might float around the media. They rely heavily, extremely heavily on the citizens in their community that, that they serve. And every time somebody screams corruption, waves a corruption flag, the FBI is going to have to conduct its due diligence to vet it out. Those are wasted resources because we're chasing things that ultimately are not. So this book hopefully educates people so they can say, oh, that's what it is. 
That's what I'm looking for. And when I see it, I can report it. And we can become more effective in our countering of corruption if people understood what it was. Much like the reason we do this podcast is because we want a better society and we want uh, people to live a better life. You are a soldier in our army, Jeff, because you're trying to train <laughs> the regular people as to, okay, well, what is this? Okay, well, here's this book. Now I can learn a little bit more and maybe not waste valuable resources and time. As we've also discussed, and going back to my team versus their team, maybe it'll, God willing, it, your book will reduce some of the uh, mudslinging because now people are like, oh, wait a minute, that's not corruption. I read Jeff's book. Jeff laid out all the different types of it. Now I'm just throwing mud. I'm going to stop throwing mud. But unfortunately, I think our society, our democracy will always be, you know, they people love to use that word corruption for their own purposes. But audience members of Good is in the Details, where you know we're going to link your book to it. I pray and I hope that they won't be members of that mudslinging because they're going to read your book and know, oh, that's not corruption. I just don't like the other side. You know, so I talk in the book about this two-tiered system at the government level or the existence of one. And we as voters, we as citizens kind of have our own two-tiered system. You know, we have a high expectation of decency and honor and integrity when it comes to raising our kids, when it comes to the companies in which we will support. We have this really high standard and appropriately so. And we kind of are willing to look the other way when it comes to politics. We have our own two-tiered system. I expect it here, but I don't expect it there. Why don't I expect it there? Because again, this this uh, greater good, the idea that if my team wins, I'm benefiting you guys so I can I can justify slinging mud for the sake of slinging mud. I can justify whatever takes my opponent down is okay because this is a war and all is fair in love and war. And I think we kind of have to move away from that mentality a little bit. And, and to Gwen's point, let's start having some more meaningful conversations about things. You know, I'm going to give you an example. I don't know if you've, uh, do you know who, not a trick question or anything, but Jeff Fortenberry. Nope. Are you familiar with that? Gwen, are you familiar with that name? Mm -hmm. Okay. So you should be right. I mean, and it, this isn't a criticism. This is a reality of the fact that people aren't nearly as anti-corruption as they like to pretend. And this includes politicians. Jeff Fortenberry is a U.S. congressman. He was charged several months ago. He was convicted uh, recently on corruption-related charges. He had taken foreign money, uh, which is illegal. Domestic U.S. campaigns can't take foreign national money. He took foreign money for his campaign and then lied about it to the FBI. He was convicted of those things. Now, what's interesting about this is he's a, one, a U.S. congressman. Two, corruption is everyone's favorite word. Everyone's, uh, my enemy's corrupt. Why aren't we hearing about Jeff Fortenberry and the fact that he was convicted? Why don't we hear that from Democrats or Republicans? Republicans saying, oh, how dare he? He shouldn't have done that to us. He set us back. And Democrats celebrating the fact that he was corrupt. We don't hear about it because they all know that they're taking foreign money one way or the other. Whether they, you know, their, their knowledge of it might vary, but there's so much foreign money floating around the Capitol Hill. They all know it. So that's one reason. The other reason is they're all one FBI interview away from getting uh, from lying to the FBI themselves. So it's a curious thing when those who supposedly care so much about corruption, when one of their own gets indicted and convicted on corruption, they're silent. Wow. Why would it? Why would the Democrats be silent? He's a U.S. congressman. A great opportunity for them to beat that drum. And they're not. And that, to me, is evidence of the points I'm making. This is all not real. It's all a game. 
the anti-corruption posture of most politicians is just gameplay. And there are good people out there, good citizens and voters who care about these things who are getting played and, and think that their politicians care about this and care about them in ways that they don't think they do. You know, they didn't necessarily go into politics looking to be corrupt, but unfortunately that is sometimes the result of the business. I, you know, one of, another one of my sayings is uh, assume the best in everyone until they prove you wrong. Assume the worst in politicians because they'll eventually prove you right. It's a cynical view. It's a law enforcement view. It's a corruption investigator view. But unfortunately, that's proven to be the case in many situations. I appreciate you know, so and, on, and on and on that happy note. <laughs> now, let me just say, I am you know, going to wrap it up note. on a happy note. I am. <laughs> I love, I love when Jeff comes on. This is great. I guess what I want to wrap up with is, you know, you have a section on ethics and I'm just going to point out that I think one of my favorite moral theories for things like this, and you mentioned it in virtue ethics is Aristotle. And I think actually, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think that by listening to you, you might actually be in favor of this because you're using the word integrity a lot in your written work and in the interview. And so that pillar of what it means to be a good person is essential for ethical behavior. And I like it because this idea of virtue means that Aristotle says it's an activity of the soul. It's what makes us human, that it is the ability to be able to look at the circumstance and do the right thing in the right way at the right time for the right reason. And sometimes if we wait for what is considered to be legal or illegal, a bad action might happen. That it's almost disingenuous to say, well, I didn't do anything wrong because it's not illegal. That if we build character and integrity, because technology outpaces existing law. So we need to have people of good character because we cannot always wait for the law to tell us what is the right or wrong thing to do. So I'm just going to point out, I like, I like that you mentioned virtue ethics as one approach to this, because you also had mentioned that a lot of laws don't come about until something bad has happened. If people have character, then we can avoid that. And by character, integrity, recognizing honesty as a virtue, recognizing that when somebody is offering something, you know, quid pro quo, and it's just, if your gut isn't with it, just to take a sense of justice over any kind of financial game or fame. So I think that I really like that you incorporated that. Is that a happy I, note, Rudy? Are you happy? I'm happy. I, am. I know no, I am. I, uh, I was talking to you guys about that chapter. No, I uh, <laughs> talking about uh, it anyway. I am happy. Having this conversation makes me happy. Having this book and recommending it to as many people as I can, which I have been doing. Mm-hmm. Jeff, I, I'm, I'm going to help you out with a couple of sales there, my friend. Um, <laughs> it make, makes me happy. I was ha- I was I was happy when Jeff was writing it. You know, when he was when he was unhappy writing it, I would say, "Keep going, man. Come on, keep going. You got to do this. Come on, come on, buddy. You got to do it. You, you got to do a podcast on it." So I'm very, I'm very happy. It's good work. Okay, Jeff. Thank you well, so much. Thank you so much. I love coming on here. You guys know it. Now I got to go come up with something else to do so I can get invited back. So. <laughs> I love hanging out with you guys. We got to do it more. There's so much to talk about still with this book. There's still, uh, I know. I got 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 a great stuff in the news. Gwen goes out and watches some of the films that we discussed on here. There were a couple and we have a podcast discussing them. I'd love a podcast talking about Blood In, Blood Out and Sicario. And then we could end it with Night of the Living Dead, which he still hasn't watched. It's all, those all kind of work together. How does he know? How does he know? He totally knows. I, I, I know. 
I know. And you're going to watch it. All right. Well, we're going to have Dahlia on soon. And my homework (laughs) was before we talked to her again, I have to watch Night of the Living Dead. Yeah. Well, we're going to talk to her about um, uh, film noir. And so you're going to have, now I have to give you a list of film noir you have to watch. So no, I I have a list for you. (laughs) Okay, Jeff. It's always yeah, a pleasure. We're going to link all your stuff in the show notes. Um, just a quick, your uh, your Twitter handle is because you have a great a great Twitter feed. Oh, thank you. Jeffrey Cortese at, oh wait, no. J-E-F-F-R. <laughs> I'm checking it you right know, now. I think we've done this before. Oh, at, yeah, okay, I'll just do it for me. At Jeffrey Cortese. J-E-F-F-R-E-Y-C-O-R-T-E-S. Okay, perfect. <laughs> well done. Okay, Jeff, have a good day. All right, thanks, you too. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks, guys. Good is in the Details is produced by Dr. Gwendolyn Dalsky and Rudy Sallow. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts and you're enjoying the show, please scroll down to the bottom and hit that five-star review. Or take a screenshot of your favorite episode and tag us on Instagram. Good is in the details pod. And if you have any questions about this episode or if you'd like to sponsor a show, you can get in touch. Good is in the details pod at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook and we're on Patreon, patreon.com slash good is in the details. Make sure you check out our show notes to learn more about Jeff Cortez's work. And if you decide to buy some bridge tallies, we've got the link in the show notes as well. Let them know that good is in the details sent you. Okay, until next time. Bye.